Well, we're continuing on in our study in the book of Romans, and we'll be looking this week and next week at Romans chapter 4. And so um, I invite you to turn there with me now. It can be found on page 941 in a Pew Bible. Uh, Our passage for this morning is also printed in your bulletin on pages 8 and 9. And so you can find it there. We'll be looking at verses 1 to 16 this morning and then uh, the rest of the chapter next week. But it's important to keep in mind the context of what is happening as we work through this letter together. And one of the key things to remember is that Paul is addressing two groups of people at the same time as he's talking to them. On the one hand, he has Jewish Christians who tend to pride themselves in their heritage and in their ethnic background. They may tend to overestimate their own goodness. Um, We have the law. We've been given the law. But Paul keeps raising the question, yeah, but do you really keep the law? And so you have Jewish Christians on the one hand, and then on the other hand, in the same congregation, you have Gentile Christians. And Gentile Christians, as they're worshiping alongside Jewish Christians, may wonder where they stand in the whole order of things. Do they have to do all these Jewish things to belong to God's people? And they could very much be tempted to think that somehow they're less than the Jewish Christians because they don't have these other things. What I find fascinating about this is we probably are facing a really similar dynamic this morning. It may not be labeled in the same way as Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, but some of us, as we come to church on a Sunday, are probably pretty proud of our own spiritual accomplishments. We know a lot of things. Been a Christian a while. We know how to do the church people thing. Others of us may come and look around and see all these people who seem way more spiritual than us and wonder how we measure up. And... I've found in my own heart, I think a lot of us are a mixture of both of those things. Um, On the one hand, we could look around and there are people that we might feel intimidated by. Whoa, (laughs) they've been a Christian a long time. I've heard them answer in discipleship hour and they know a lot, you know, (laughs) whatever it might be. Um, And, oh, I'm not quite there where they are. Uh, But on the other hand, we look around and we might see other people and say, well, I know I'm higher on the spiritual ladder than they are, so at least I'm in the middle somewhere. (laughs) Is that a dynamic in your own heart, or am I just weird? Well, I'll just assume we're all there in some way. Paul says that what's happening when that's taking place, whether that's back at the Church of Rome, whether that's here, or whether that's here, is human boasting. It's sizing up the room and asking the question, where do I stand? And as we do that, we find a mixture of pride because we're doing better than some and despair because we're not doing as well as the others. There's this whole striving dynamic. And what Paul is just beating down again and again is at the core of that, it is measuring our works. It is making our works the gauge of our boast and our confidence or of our timidity and of our shame. And this boasting, this sizing each other up, it's disastrous for the Christian life. And it's disastrous for the church. And Paul deals with it repeatedly. 
He does so here extensively as he begins Romans, and really the whole book is moving towards this. He does this extensively in the Corinthian correspondence. He does this extensively in the church at Galatia. He mentions it to the church at Ephesus. It's all over because it goes so deep in our hearts. We all battle with this so much. But the remedy to this boasting, Paul says, is the gospel. Because the gospel, by its very design, excludes and destroys human boasting. Now I hear that and I think, yeah, I know that theologically. What's the antidote to boasting? The gospel. What's the antidote to anything? The gospel, (laughs) right? We could say. Um, And then I look at my own life and I say, but this goes so deep. How is the gospel the answer to my tendency to look at my own works? And there's good news. There's good news for this, and he shows us with Abraham how this works. And today we'll see how he points back to the life of Abraham to show us how this was working in his life and how that affects us in our life and how we relate to one another as a church. And so I'm going to read our passage, Romans chapter 4, verses 1 to 16. Paul's doing a lot of extensive argumentation here, and so if, if you get lost in the midst of it, it's okay, and we'll, we'll come back to it and we'll figure it out together. But notice how much he talks about faith, and notice how much he talks about how everything about the gospel comes through faith. He says this in Romans chapter 4, verse 1. This is God's word. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness." Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose of this was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace 
and may be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Let's pray and ask that God would help us by his spirit as we consider this passage this morning. Our Father in heaven, we ask for your help. We come as people. We have many needs and cares upon our hearts. We have bodies that are filled with all kinds of struggles. And we pray that you, as the great creator of us all, would meet us where we are, that by your spirit you would work in our heart to convict us of our sin and our pride, to encourage us in our weakness and our doubt, most of all to show us the wonder of what we have in Jesus that we receive by faith as a gift from you. Help us in all this, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to look at this passage um, according to two points. The first point will be Abraham's example, And then secondly, we'll look at Abraham's reward. So first of all, we'll consider Abraham's example. We see this primarily in verses 1 through 8. And then we'll consider his reward in verses 9 through 16. So, Abraham's example. Paul continues dealing with the topic of human boasting, which is where we finished at last week. And he does so by considering Abraham. Now, I'm not sure what your thoughts are about Abraham when I bring up that name. But if anyone in Israel's history could wear the shirt that says, I'm kind of a big deal, (laughs) Abraham could wear that shirt. I think he probably started it, really. Um, He's a central figure in the Bible. um, And he's a central figure for a lot of reasons. I mean, as God's plan of redemption unfolds, we find that the Messiah is going to come through him, through his family, and that all nations are going to be blessed through Abraham and his family. It's, it's this amazing thing. Um, but as often happens, views of Abraham had grown or become inflated over time. And one of the things that's amazing is we have these um, writings of extra-biblical books that are religious books that talk about how the Jewish people were viewing their religion around the time Jesus came. You know, 200 years before to 100 years after, we have these writings. And the writings clearly show that Abraham, while he was a great guy, not perfect, did some um, major things wrong as well, um, they had come to view him as far beyond what he was. Listen to a few of these quotes. Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord and well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. It's from the book of Jubilees. The prayer of Manasseh says, Abraham did not sin against God. (laughs) Whoa! (laughs) I think there are a few chapters we might need to look at back in Genesis. Um, And then um, the wisdom of Ben Sirah. No one has been found like him in glory. (laughs) You know, if we're in glory, Abraham's just there and we're all just down here in some way. I could go on and on. There are a ton of amazing quotes about how amazing Abraham was. But you have to understand, this is some of the background to the thinking that Jewish believers had as part of what they were thinking about as they approached the scriptures. And the, the Jewish thinking had become this. Abraham was so righteous 
that God rewarded Abraham for his righteousness. And if that's the case, Abraham has something to boast about. He's kind of a big deal. And then Paul says, but not before God. Like, whoa, I can't even go on. I need to make that clear. And so let's consider what Paul holds out here. How did it really work for Abraham? And Paul goes back to the passage that we heard this morning in our scripture reading, Genesis 15, verse 6. And he quotes it here in verse 3 of our passage. It says, For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Notice the order of what's taking place there. Belief in God. Faith comes first. And then Abraham goes on to do the works that demonstrate his faith. You see, the problem was the people had come to look at like Genesis 22 when Abraham most famously has that faith where he's willing to offer up Isaac. And they started to think, well, those kind of acts are why he was declared righteous. The Jewish conception of Abraham had become this. Abraham's work justification, declared righteous. Abraham can boast, right? And Paul says, wait a minute, you've missed it. The Bible clearly shows us in Genesis 15, 6 that the order is this. Faith, justification, works, obedience. And he, so Paul's highlighting, notice the way that this took place. Notice the order. And then he uses this key term so we can understand what's taking place. He uses this term reckoned or counted to him. Our, our version saying it was counted to him. And we need to understand a little bit about working and reckoning. Um, it means crediting something to someone's account, essentially. It's this business transaction language. And Paul then goes on in verses 4 and 5 to use this everyday example of working and reckoning to show the contrast of what he's talking about. If you get a job and work for something, a wage is owed you. Your employer is indebted to you to reckon you, to count you that wage. And when they pay you, that's what's happening. They are reckoning you for your work. But, verse 5, Paul tells us there's also another type of counting. There's another type of reckoning that God does in the gospel. And that's a reckoning, that's a counting that's not of works. It's a counting of faith. It says there in verse 5, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted or reckoned as righteousness. Do you see the contrast of what Paul is doing there? There's two ways of reckoning. One is by your works, like when you have a job, and the other is by faith. Work relies on your strength. Believing relies on the strength of another. Work is all about doing. Faith is all about open-handed receiving. And what Paul is trying to show his hearers there is that the text clearly says that Abraham wasn't reckoned because he earned it or because he worked for it. He trusted in the trustworthiness of God who justifies, who reckons, who credits the ungodly. Paul's calling Abraham here ungodly, 
(laughs) Abraham, as an ungodly one, looked in faith to the trustworthy God to count him as righteous. And his faith was counted or reckoned to him as righteousness. And you know what's amazing is Paul says that wasn't just for Abraham. This is how it works all throughout God's plan of salvation. But notice he picks up on that word reckoned and counted, and he says that's how it worked for David too. How did it work for David? Well, Paul quotes Psalm 32. Now, when we hear Psalm 32, where should our minds go just contextually? Some of us may be familiar with this, some of us not. But Psalm 32 is a psalm that's written in response to David, Israel's greatest king, who had done some really awful things. He committed horrible sins against Bathsheba and Uriah. And those sins were even worse transgressions because of the authority he had as the people's king who was to care for these people under him, and instead he does these things to him. But David repents, and he seeks God's forgiveness. And notice what it says. Blessed is the person against whom the Lord will not count or reckon his sin. You see, Paul pulls this verse out because he says, look, this is what's happening not only with Abraham, this is what's happening with David. The amazing thing, here's what we need to understand. The amazing thing about God's salvation is not that our good works are somehow counted toward us. Instead, it's that our sin is not counted against us. Our lawless deeds are forgiven. Our sins are covered. And we are blessed like David because those sins have been paid for by another. And we receive that forgiveness by faith. You know, the accounting imagery is helpful for us, I think, um, because many of us have bank accounts in some way. And kids, if you don't have one yet, there's a lot to look forward to. Um, You can ask your parents to see theirs and see where that goes. Um, Part of the reason the accounting language is so helpful is because money is also a sign of status for us in many ways in our culture, right? Um, Imagine that we were all able to see each other's bank accounts just openly, like it's just kind of there on your shirt. (laughs) Well, I got some looks. That was fun. That confirms what I thought. That would be pretty exposing, right? That would be uncomfortable, I think. Um, We would see how we compare to others, wouldn't we? For some of us, we'd be like, oh, I have more than them. Um, For others, oh, I have less than them. Um, What Paul is saying here is this. If we were to open our banking app on our phone, Um, but instead it's a spiritual banking app. It's our accounts before God. He's saying that regardless of who we are, if we have faith in Christ, we would open that up, and where it says debt, it would say forgiven by faith in Christ for every single one of us. And then there would be another box that's there, account balance. And it would say the exact same thing. Righteous by faith in Christ. That's what would show up on all of our accounts. And if somehow we made that digitally show up on our shirts, that's what would show up as well. 
that answer would be the same for every one of us, no matter how old or young in the faith we are, no matter what you have done. If you're Abraham, if you're David, if you're not in the Bible, which is most of us, he says that's how the by-faith way works. That's what it does to your account. Do you see how this is a remedy then for our boasting? If we really believed this, we wouldn't come to church needing to size up the room. We could look around and say, you know what? I'll be honest, you seem way more spiritual than me. (laughs) But our account is the same. I tend to look down on you. Let me just be honest, you know. I'm not saying all of you. This is a one-on-one. Anyhow, that didn't go well. (laughs) I look down on all of you. Even if I did. Uh, This says your account is the same as mine. It's not that our works don't matter at all. Our works are actually something that we can celebrate. But he says you have to keep the order right. For all of us, it's faith, justification, works and obedience that flow out to the glory of God out of gratitude. For all of us, it's 100% gift, and it is 0% wage. It is 0% earned. Tim Keller went home to be with the Lord on... um, I thought that might happen if I put this in my notes. He went home to be with the Lord on Friday. Um, I don't know how that makes you feel. For me, Tim Keller was a giant in the faith, someone that I really uh, looked up to. His writings have blessed me and helped me understand the gospel in ways like few other people had. Um, His insight into the culture, into what it looks like to live the Christian life. And then for me, one of the most amazing things about Tim Keller is that from everything I can tell and from everything everyone says about him, his character actually matched up to his intellect. And that's a rare thing to find in our day, unfortunately. And so we celebrate, we give thanks for all that God did through him, all those good works. But you know what hit me as I was preparing this sermon? Tim Keller wasn't justified for any of those things. Tim Keller was just as justified as we are. And in glory, his boast will not be in his books and how many converts happened under his ministry and how many churches were planted uh, through his training, but his boast will be only in Jesus, just like it will be for you and just like it will be for me. And so when we despair and we think, I'm just not pulling my weight. I'm just not measuring up. There's good news. Our relationship with God is not a wage. It's a gift. And when we're patting ourselves on the back for job well done, we're starting to put our confidence in our performance, and we're looking around wondering when others will get with the program, it says, wait a minute. That's nothing to boast about before God. We are just as justified as the thief on the cross was, who didn't do one thing before he died. And so we humbly give thanks to God for whatever grace he's showing in our life that comes out in obedience to him. And so Abraham and David remind us that righteousness is not earned. It is received by faith, 
That's what Paul wants us to see, first of all, with Abraham's example, how his justification worked. But then he goes on to discuss Abraham's reward. And that's our second point, Abraham's reward. And we'll look at this in verses 9 through 16. Now, as we're listening to this, and maybe not as familiar with what would be going through the minds of Jewish Christians, it can sound a little bit strange. He goes on to talk about blessing and promise and circumcision and the law, and we're like, whoa, Paul, where are you going? But there's actually a really natural progression here that I think we can all understand. Because what we can imagine is this, that someone is saying, okay, Paul, you made your point about justification. You made your point that Abraham was declared righteous because of his faith. That's great. But there's a lot more to Abraham, right? All of those other things, the people, the nation, the land, the blessings that were promised to Abraham, we all know that those came because of what Abraham did, right? Um, And if I want to receive the blessings of Abraham and the blessings that were promised to Abraham and to his offspring, then I need to do the same things that he did. I need to do the things that connect me to Abraham, circumcision and keeping the law. Do you see what they're doing? Yeah, justification can be by faith, but blessing comes by works. And Paul says, no, it all comes by faith. The blessing is by faith. The promise is by faith. And that's really what he shows here. And so I want to treat both of those things. Notice, first of all, the blessing is by faith. And that's what he's talking about here in verses 9 to 12. He says in verse 9, is this blessing, David has just said he's blessed um, as one of God's people with his forgiveness. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or only for the Jewish people, is what he's saying? Or is it also for the uncircumcised, people who haven't grown up in a Jewish heritage, the Gentiles? Isn't it by being one of Abraham's people, isn't it by being circumcised that you receive God's blessing? And Paul says, wait a minute, actually, let's stop and let's think about the chronology. Let's go back and read the story in our Bibles. Abraham was declared righteous because of his faith in what we heard in our scripture reading. Genesis chapter 15. I'm going to do some profound math, so stick with me. Genesis 15 comes before Genesis 17. (laughs) And Genesis 17 is where Abraham is circumcised. See the order that's there? And so Paul is drawing out this chronology. It wasn't until many years later in Genesis 17, which is just a few chapters for us, but was at least 14 years, and many of the rabbis said it was 29 years later that Abraham was circumcised. And then Paul says what? Abraham's circumcision, what was that? It was a sign and it was a seal of, it was a confirmation of what had already happened back in Genesis 15, of his being declared righteous by faith. That's what circumcision was, a sign and a seal of. And so what does this mean? What does this history and math lesson mean? It means this, God intentionally declared Abraham righteous in Genesis 15, and he promised blessings to him there on purpose before he was circumcised so that it could be clear that the blessing comes not by circumcision, but that it comes by faith. And so what Paul is really saying here is this. You're right. Being one of Abraham's people, 
is how you receive God's blessing. Because it's through Abraham that the Messiah will come. But here's where you're wrong. You become one of Abraham's people not by circumcision, but you become one of Abraham's people by faith through belief because you're believing ultimately in the offspring of Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's where he goes on to say that Abraham's the father of all who not only are circumcised, but walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. And so what Paul is saying here is this, God designed it this way. He intentionally had Genesis 15 come before Genesis 17 for a reason. Why? Because his goal was always that it would be one people receiving the same blessing. And so that Jews and Gentiles would all receive the same blessing in the same way. And what is that way? By faith. By faith in Christ. And so it's not just then, Paul says, that circumcision isn't necessary, but keeping the Jewish law isn't necessary either. And that's what he shows secondly. The promise is also by faith. And he unpacks this in verses 13 to 16. Look with me at verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Now, um, we're going to talk more next week about that amazing promise that's going on here and what it means that he would be heir of the world. We'll unpack those things more because Paul continues to talk about those things. But let me just summarize here so then we can understand the logic because that's what we need to see in his argumentation. Abraham was promised offspring as numerous as the sand on the seashore, right? All nations would be blessed through them. And when this comes to fruition, it is nothing less than, as Paul says here, inheriting the world, the new heavens and the new earth. That is what's promised to Abraham, and that's what's promised to all who are in Abraham by faith. Again, we'll talk more about that. But here's what we need to see. Notice the logic of it. The promise of this heavenly inheritance, life with God. How does it come to Abraham? It's by faith and not by the law. He says in verse 14, excuse me, if obtaining the promise was by keeping the law, then it's void. What does that mean? He says, no one's going to get this promise if law-keeping is the way to get it, because no one can keep the law. And in fact, in verse 15, he says, the law doesn't make you more worthy of the promise. Instead, the law points out that you deserve wrath. And why is that? Well, he says this weird phrase, where there is no law, there is no transgression. This doesn't mean that before the law there wasn't sin, Paul's going to really unpack this here in Romans 5 when we come to it. But he's saying, you see, transgression is a certain type of sin. It's when something is clear, it's laid out, do or don't do this, and then you transgress it. And so the law, Paul is saying, is takes, it takes you from being a sinner who generally breaks God's law that's written on your heart. You have this sense of what's right and wrong, and and you don't even measure up to that. But what the law does is it actually then makes you a transgressor, 
one who has been clearly told what to do and what not to do, and then you fail as well. And so all that is building to this. So the promise, he says, it can't depend on the law. Verse 16, good news. That's why it doesn't depend on the law and our ability to keep it. It depends on faith. In order that the promise, life with God forever for his people, may rest on what? Works? No. That promise rests firmly on grace as a gift. And the promise, he says, is guaranteed. Not to those who are merely circumcised, not to those who merely have the law, but who is the promise guaranteed to? All who share the faith of Abraham. Well, why does this matter? <laughs> I mean, you hear Paul's argumentation, right? There should be one thing we walk away with. Everything about our salvation, we don't earn it. It is a gift that's from God's grace that's received by open-handed faith that says, I will receive that, what Jesus has done for me. But part of the reason that this whole thing about Abraham's reward matters so much is that we do a really similar thing to what was happening there at the church at Rome. We say, heaven, yes, that's by faith in Christ. But blessing as God's people, having God's promises, that's about more than faith. That comes by the things that we do. That comes by the boxes we check. That comes by who we're connected to. And see, we, this really goes awry kind of in two ways. The first is this. We say Jesus plus or faith plus equals God's blessing. You know, if we go back to the banking app illustration and you pull up your spiritual bank account, you know, you have these categories at the top. Debt, forgiven in Christ. Account balance, righteous by faith in Christ. But you keep scrolling, right? And there's this, there's this other thing you come to. And it's a lot like our credit score. It's that gauge, right? And on the one side, it's red. And on the other side, it's green. And in between, it's orange. And you want to be on the green side because that's really good. And the red side is not good. That gauge is the section that for us is God's promised blessing, yeah, that's my account balance, but what's God's promised blessing to me? Is it down here in the red or is it up here in the green? And for each of us, we have an internal gauge of how that scoring is kept, don't we? For Paul's audience, it was this. Are you circumcised? Do you keep the law? That's what gets it into the green of God's blessing. We probably don't keep it that way. Instead, we have our own internal scoring systems. It could be doctrinal. Do you know enough of the right stuff to be living the blessed, reformed, baptistic life? Do you like the right theologians? As I say these names, do you smile or not smile? That's going to determine how God smiles upon you. It could be activism over various causes. Are you passionate about this issue? Because every Christian should be this passionate about this issue. Oh, you're passionate about that issue? Christians shouldn't be as passionate about that issue. It's this issue. 
It can be piety. Yes, it's all about Jesus, but what's your prayer life look like? It's, it's all about Jesus, but have you done these spiritual things? It's all about Jesus, but do you dress in this way or talk like this? It can be all kinds of things that for us, that's what that gauge of God's blessing is. It could be our relationships, our job performance, our bodily health. And doing well at this thing means that God will be blessing us in some way. But Paul says, that's not how that works. He said, yes, that gauge is there. But when you come to that gauge in your app, it's always all the way at the max of green. All of the promised blessings of God come to us the same by grace, received by faith. You know why? So it can be guaranteed that that is our score of God's blessing because Jesus is the only one who could earn that level of blessing for us. And so on our worst day, that gauge doesn't move. And on our best day, that gauge doesn't move either. Now you may say, wait a minute, I don't feel like God's blessing in my life is at the max right now. I mean, there's a lot of things that are really hard. I think that's where it's helpful to look at the narrative of Abraham's life. It didn't always feel that blessed for Abraham either. But all of the blessings and promises for him were yes and amen in Christ. And even though we are just experiencing a taste of a lot of that blessing right now and we're walking by faith, we will receive the fullness of it one day, just as Abraham will when our Lord Jesus returns. And you see, God designed it this way. He designed it so it all rests on grace, so he can guarantee it. Because he can't guarantee it based on our score. (laughs) He can actually guarantee something else. That deserves wrath. But based on Jesus' score... That deserves blessing and life with God. And it's like what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, then, as we think about our boasting. What do you have in the Christian life that you didn't receive as a gift? Nothing. And he says, then, then if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it or as if you earned it somehow? You see, that's what Paul's trying to show us through the life of Abraham. It's not Jesus plus equals God's blessing. We all have the same score before God. And so that remedies our individual boasting before God. What's our level of blessing with you? But there's one other thing I want us to consider here. We're not only tempted to say it's Jesus plus equals my blessing from God, but we also say it's Jesus plus equals our belonging to one another. And that's what's going on here. Did you notice how much family language is in this discussion of Abraham? It's all about offspring and Abraham as a father. You see, when God designed salvation, it wasn't just so you would, be, you would individually believe and have faith and be right with him, and that's all. Faith makes us Abraham's children, Faith says we belong in Abraham's family because Abraham's family, turns out as scripture goes on to show, is really God's family. Abraham's family really is the body of Christ. 
It's Jesus' bride. It's one people, Jew and Gentile, brought together. But you see, we tend to do what they did. You have faith? That's great. But to belong, to belong here, and to belong here with me, you have to do other things. Believing gets you into the body of Christ, but belonging is about other things. And you see, they set up these barriers of belonging to the body, circumcision, what's your view of all these different laws and way of living the Christian life. What are some of the boundaries that we might set up to the belonging together? Is it you have to look like me to belong? You have to talk like me to belong? You have to worship like me? You have to have all the same views about the Christian lifestyle as me? You know, it's, it's great that you're a believer, but you have to do those things that we mentioned before to get the blessing of belonging. You have to have the right doctrine and like the right theologians. You need to have the same views and priorities on the political issues of the day. You can see why Paul is so against this, right? Because if it's really all by faith that makes us belong in God's family, then that's undercutting the gospel when we put up those barriers, isn't it? Paul says, faith tells me who my brothers and sisters are. It's what brings this family together. But when we make belonging dependent on these other things, we've slipped boasting right back in again. And now we have a whole status system that we've brought into the church. Now, sure, we're going to have different views. We're going to have different beliefs. We're actually not all going to be part of the same church, and we're going to worship and practice worship in in different ways. But we belong to one family, and that dictates a posture towards one another. You know, one of the things um, that people are talking about a lot and I think is really important to have our... um, thoughts focused on is the de-churched mentality that's taking place. Many people who were once part of the church are no longer part of the church. And it's happened a lot by what they have experienced as young people as a part of the church. And I think a lot of that ties into some of this barrier setting that we put in place. What happens when we are saying being a Christian looks like all these extra things that we've added to the gospel And then someone, as they're growing up in the Christian life, doesn't come to see the world in the exact same way that you see it. Or maybe they're pointing out some things that we as Christians, maybe we've missed and have been lacking in our our witness to the world. And what happens when all we've communicated is you have to do and think these things to belong, when they start thinking a little bit differently, not about the truth, but about what it looks like to live out that truth as a Christian in our world. And rather than humbly listening and learning and dialoguing, you know what we tend to communicate as a church? If you're wondering about that, you don't belong. If you struggle with that, you don't belong. And you can see how you don't have to go very far down the train of thought to say, If I didn't belong among God's people, then maybe I don't belong with Jesus either. Because we're supposed to be representing the in-faith belonging 
that happens when you become part of the body of Christ. You know, I've never served in the military, but we throughout our church's history have had many people who have, and I'm slowly seeking to learn about how it works. And one of the things that I really appreciate just from the outside is how you can look at someone's outfit and you can see their insignia, wherever that might be, and you know exactly how you're supposed to relate to them. Wow, that's really clarifying, I think, in a lot of ways. (laughs) It often doesn't feel that clear in the Christian life, does it? But you know what Paul's saying? It's actually a lot closer to that clear for us as believers. That we can look at one another and we can see our status. Because as we meet another person and we find out their name, we know, first of all, that their status is they're an image bearer of God and that um, contains a certain amount of dignity right away. But as soon as we find out they're trusting in Christ, they have a status and an identity of being an in-Christ person. And that means they're my brother. That means they're my sister. That means I know how I am to relate to them because we belong to one another. Now, we have to walk that out in wise love and, and all those sorts of things, but there's this belonging that happens when we understand of what happens by faith. And if we really start to treat one another this way, That's a radical testimony to the world, isn't it? Because you know what's happening day in and day out? Is an algorithm is telling us, you belong, but you actually don't belong. Because here's all the differences, and here's all the things to fight about. But you know what the gospel tells us? Here's Jesus. And if you're in him, you belong. And you have all the blessings of life with God, and life with his people. Wouldn't it be great if we had something that reminded us of all of this that comes to us by faith? It'd be cool if we had maybe an app or something. But wait a minute, we probably pick up our phones too much as it already is, and we're probably more addicted to screens than we even know. And so I think God has given us something even better, hasn't he? He's given us what we have this morning. He's given us his word, the gospel that we hear over and over again. But he's also given us his visible word, these signs that show us this. Baptism, by faith, you are an in-Christ person. You have died with him and been raised with him and belong to him. The Lord's Supper, you are forgiven, you're declared righteous, all the promises and blessings of God are upon you. You are united to Christ, you are united to me, and I am united to you in him. And we proclaim this every Sunday. May God help us by his spirit to think and act more and more based on these truths as we see ourselves and as we see one another. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and the wonder of how it unfolds, what you've shown us way back thousands of years ago with Abraham that has become so much clearer now in Christ. We pray you'd make it clear in our own lives as you give us the faith to believe more and more in the promises we have through him. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.